All right, good afternoon, everyone. Welcome. My name is Maureen Conway. I'm Vice President for Policy Programs here at the Aspen Institute and Executive Director of the Economic Opportunities Program. And it is my great pleasure to welcome you to today's event, uh, Drivers of Opportunity, How Will Latinos Shape the Future of the American Dream? Um, it's really exciting to be doing today's event in particular uh, because I'm doing, uh, we're working in collaboration with the Latinas in Society program. So, uh, so this is a really special version of our, of our Working in America series um, uh, because it's also um, a Latinas in Society program event too. Um, at the Economic Opportunities Program, we advance promising policies, strategies, and ideas to help low and moderate income Americans connect to and thrive in a changing economy. So we look at a variety of issues that affect how do people connect to work, how do people connect to jobs and to good jobs, how do people start businesses and, and build their own jobs and their own work. Um, work is sort of a central part of identity, actually, in the United States, and it's a central um, way that we um, engage with our with our communities and societies and with each other and it's obviously a critical way that we support ourselves and our families in in today's economy so uh, so we really focused on work in our in our working in America series and we've been um, running the working in America series for about five years and we've been looking at a variety of uh, issues around work in terms of specific industries, specific occupations, uh, the changing nature of work, um, particular policies and practices that can shape the, the nature of work. And so we're really, really uh, thrilled today to be looking at sort of what does the experience of Latinos um, tell us about the nature of opportunity today and what are, the, what are the ways that this large and growing demographic engage with work, engage with entrepreneurship, and how do we understand what that tells us about the future of the American dream? So we're really just thrilled to have you all here for this, this conversation. Um, I want to thank uh, the Ford Foundation, the Prudential Foundation, and the Walmart Foundation for their support of the Working in America series in particular. Um, they're tremendous partners, partners for us in the Economic Opportunities Program, and we couldn't do our work without their, their support, their partnership, and their, and their thought partnership as well. So we're really grateful to them. Um, I want to remind everybody that we are recording and live streaming today's events. So if you have a phone with you, please do put it on silent. Um, but do please uh, participate via Twitter as well. Our hashtag for today's event is Latinos Advance. So if you've come to Working in America events before, we usually use a different hashtag. But today's hashtag is Latinos Advance. Um, and uh, um, we also, as I mentioned, we are live streaming. So we may also, uh, we invite people who are watching us via live stream to please um, participate in the Q&A session and, and tweet us questions using the hashtag LatinosAdvance. Um, we'll be excited to take questions that way as well, as well when we get to, the, to that part. Um, and it's now my great pleasure uh, to hand the microphone over to my wonderful colleague, uh, Abigail Golden-Vasquez, head of the Latinas in Society program. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you very much. Well, thank you, everyone. It's my uh, distinct pleasure to add my voice to the welcome to all of you for Drivers of Opportunity, How Latinos Will Shape the Future of the American Dream. Uh, the Latinos in Society program was founded in 2015 by the Aspen Institute in recognition of our changing demographics and, um, and what that was going to mean for our country 
and to provide a, a needed nonpartisan forum for conversation, learning, and idea generation on critical issues affecting Latinos and the nation. We focus on three key levers of change, civic participation, educational attainment, and most relevant to today's conversation, economic advancement. We also integrate Latino perspectives throughout the Institute with programs like the Ricardo Salinas Scholarship Fund and other par partnerships. By embracing people of all sectors, races, and ethnicities in our programming, we learn from each other and ideally come up with better ideas to inform action. And after all, that is the Aspen idea. Today's program is part of a year-long series that we've been engaged in on Latino economic advancement, focusing on scaling Latino-owned businesses, increasing Latino household and retirement savings, and building the skills and conditions that foster economic mobility through work and entrepreneurship. This series culminate, will culminate in our 2018 America's Future Summit, Unlocking Potential Advancing Prosperity, which will take place in Chicago, Illinois on May 17th. So save the date. One of the wonderful perks of being a part of the Aspen Institute is the opportunity to learn from and partner with outstanding colleagues and established policy programs like the Financial Security Program, Citizenship and American Identity, the FIELD Program, and of course, Maureen and the Economic Opportunity Program today. It was just such a partnership that with EOP that's making today's program possible and building upon EOP's extensive body of work and workforce skills and creation of good jobs, we focused in on the unique circumstances of the Latino workforce in America, which represents a whopping 17% of the civilian workforce and is only expected to grow. Latinos have high rates of labor participation, but are overrepresented in lower wage occupations. As a relatively young and growing population, on track to reach nearly one in every three Americans by 2060, Latinos will have considerable influence on the nation's trajectory well into the future. While Latino families are progressing by many important measures, including increased high school graduation rates, uh, high rates of new business creation, greater numbers attending higher educational institutions, Latinos continue to face significant hurdles, causing them to trail many of their fellow peers in household income and wealth. So investing in equipping Latinos with the skills needed to qualify for good jobs with living wages, benefits, and pathways to mobility, as well in, as ensuring that there are more of these types of good jobs available, will pay dividends to a wider group of Americans and the economy as a whole in the long run. So before handing the program over to our moderator, I'd like to also recognize our visionary program supporters who make the work of the Latinos in Society program possible. The Ricardo Salinas Foundation, Target, the Woody and Gail Hunt Family Foundation, the Bank of America Charitable Foundation, Comcast NBC, Universal Telemundo, Edison International and the Weingart Foundation. Please join me in thanking them. We have an outstanding group of panelists for you today coming from academia, business, local government, and an innovative laboratory for workers' voice. On your chairs, you'll find the full bios of our fantastic lineup of speakers, and if you're viewing online, by scrolling down below the video box. 
I'd also like to thank our digital influencers for helping to amplify this. And just a second reminder to use hashtag Latinos Advance if you're engaging on social media. Now, without further ado, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the stage our moderator, Kimberly Adams, senior reporter at NPR's Marketplace, Maria, Marie Mora, professor of economics and associate vice provost for faculty diversity at the University of Texas, Rio Grande Valley, all the way at the end, yeah. Carmen Rojas, CEO of the Workers Lab, Jose Corona, Director of Equity and Strategic Partnerships, City of Oakland, Office of the Mayor. And last but not least, Maria Rios, President and CEO of Nation Waste, Inc., who, lovely, who lovingly embraces the moniker, the Queen of Trash. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, thank you all so much. And so um, I really appreciate the opportunity to be here for this event. It's a really important coverage area for Marketplace, which is from American Public Media, not NPR, in case my bosses are watching. And, <laughs> and the workforce in America is incredibly diverse. And as you just heard, this is a big part of it. So to get started, I'd actually like to start with you, Marie. Um, you've done so much research on this. And I'm hoping that you can provide us with a bit of an overview of the role that Latinos play in the economy today. Yes, I'm very happy to do so. In fact, as this panel knows, I have prepared some slides. Um, it's not very many slides. Um, I'm going to go through some numbers very quickly, so stand warned. Um, in your packets here in the audience, you do have copies of the slides. I'm not going to be focusing so much on specific numbers, um, but I, we thought it was really important to start this panel by providing a basic overview. And I'm going to go ahead and stand up uh, by the screen just because I, I feel very uncomfortable just sitting when I'm talking. So, And I just realized the stairs are on the side, so I need to walk around. And we have a, uh, the, the forwarder, the clicker for the, the slides. I think we I did have Claire coming with Okay, yes, here we come. We had the, yeah, we were playing around with it earlier, so it's right here. Great, thank you. Okay, so one of the ways I like to get started is really asking the question, why should we care? And the reason why we should care is we have a basic demographic issue, uh, and that is looking at the growing Hispanic population, Latino population, we're not just talking about factors that affect Latinos. Because of changing demographics, what is happening to Latinos is of national critical importance. And if we consider going back to 1980, the Latino population has quadrupled. Uh, we're going from essentially less of about 14 million people in 1980 to nearly 58 million people today. Uh, currently, Latinos represent about 18%. That's more than one out of every six people in this nation. So what's happening with the Latino population is extremely important, not just for Latinos, but also for national prosperity. Um, if we add in the 3.3 million people who live in Puerto Rico, we're talking about nearly 61 million individuals in, the, in this country who identify as being Latino or Hispanic. Um, by 2060, as the opening remarks mentioned, uh, Latinos are expected to represent nearly one out of every three people. And in some states, we already have that. For example, in New Mexico, Latinos represent over uh, approximately half. And then in California and Texas, Latinos already represent four out of every 10 people. Um, so again, the future and socioeconomic prosperity of Latinos will be driving national uh, future and socioeconomic prosperity. Um, to give you a quick overview of the of different demographic groups that Latinos represent, um, 
Right now, the Latino population is rapidly growing, particularly we see that with the young population. So if we focus on individuals who are ages 18 and younger, Latinos currently represent over a, about a quarter of that population. And they represent higher shares the younger you go in terms of the age distribution. If you look at population over ages 65 and older, Latinos only represent 8%. So there's a lot of growth, particularly of the young. Um, in recent years, the shift in terms of Latino population growth has moved away from immigration into the US-born Hispanics, so basically the second generation, the children of, of immigrants. Um, Latinos represent about 17% of the labor force, slight underrepresentation in the business sector, but I'll be talking briefly about some of the gains Latinos have made there. Uh, given differences in educational attainments, uh, regrettably, Latinos also are overrepresented among uh, people who live below the poverty line, so representing more than one out of a quarter of those individuals. Um, and again, a lot of this is driven by differences in educational attainment. If we focus on individuals, adults, who do not have a high school diploma nor GED, Latinos currently represent nearly half of that population, but only 8% of those who have uh, college degrees or higher. So as a labor economist, I love looking at numbers rather than just reading them. And so I do have a couple of, of slides just to show you some of the recent demographic changes. So these go back to 2006 to 2016, the most recent data we have to break these down. Um, and in terms of our overall, this blue line here, this is the overall representation of Latinos in the population in the US. Again, these are, we're focusing on the 50 states in DC. And we can see just over this 10-year period, we have had a significant increase in the representation of Latinos. Um, up here, we have the representation of Latinos among the young population, ages 18 and younger. And then in the green, we have Latino representation among people who are ages 65 and older. In the bottom panel here, we have some labor force figures. Um, so the red here, this is the representation of Latinos who are identified as self-employed. And we can see there's a gap with respect to the representation in the self-employment sector versus the overall labor force, but the gap has been narrowing over time. Um, part of this is because we have a growing Latino population, so it makes sense we're gonna have more Latino business owners. Um, but in some of my research with Alberto Davila, we've also found that within the Latino population, self-employment tendencies have also increased. So this narrowing gap is not just driven solely by population growth, it's also driven by changes within the Latino population who are participating more in self-employment activities. And I guess before I, I go from this one, oops, going back. I, I lost our, our, Sorry, we're going to run through these very, very quickly. So we have the slides here, but it's not showing on the screen here. I'm not, I should have also given you a warning. In addition to going through numbers fast, I'm not very technically <laughs> sufficient. So. Okay, I think we're good there, and then I can just, I'll just flip through these to go. Okay, the other thing I wanted to point out, so that we're good, thank you. So my apologies. Uh, in terms of uh, the green line here, this is a representation of Latinos who are uh, in the population that resides below the poverty line. So we can see an overrepresentation. although in recent years that has essentially flatlined. Um, now if we focus on individuals who have different uh, education levels, again, we have a population of adults who do not have a high school diploma or a GED, and we can see again the overrepresentation. Uh, among uh, of Latinos, and then this bottom green line is this is representation of Latinos among college graduates. Um, we have seen some tapering off, and some of this has been driven by some of the opening comments, and that is Latinos have been making gains in terms of increasing educational attainment. Um, high school graduation rates are up, uh, so Latinos have been narrowing the gap slightly uh, with respect to our non-Latino population, 
Uh, so in this bottom panel, this, this is uh, showing you the average years of schooling uh, in the Latino population. So this is overall Latinos. Uh, if we focus exclusively on US-born Latinos, uh, we do see that US-born Latinos have higher education levels, which is probably not surprising uh, when we are comparing to immigrant groups. Yet we still have this gap with non-Latinos. Uh, and the gap is larger if you focus uh, exclusively on non-Hispanic whites. Um, we have seen a little bit of narrowing, and again, that has to do with some of the progress Latinos are making. But other groups are also gaining in educational attainment. So these gaps are likely to persist, even though some gains have been made. Um, unless changes are made, these gaps are likely to persist for quite some time. Finally, I was asked in my opening comments uh, to talk a little bit about the heterogeneity or the diversity within the Hispanic population. Because we usually use the term Latino or Hispanic as if we're talking about a homogeneous population. And actually, even just the previous demographics, we could see that the Latino population is quite varied. In terms of our sub-ethnic representation, um, the total Latino population you have here uh, in terms of the, the left-hand side, uh, Mexican-Americans represent about two-thirds of the Latino population. Puerto Ricans are the second largest group, representing about 10%. Uh, then we have Cubans, uh, Salvadorans, Dominicans. And then the top kind of uh, pattern red is uh, other Hispanic groups. Um, but if you are focusing on different regions or different states, the Latino population diversity varies quite a bit. So I put up here the four states that have the largest Latino populations, which are California, Texas, New York, and Florida. And we can see that California and Texas have a predominantly uh, uh, you predominantly see Mexican-Americans representing the Latino population. If you look at New York, though, the largest Latino group is Puerto Ricans, um, but also the Dominicans uh, represent a significant share. And then for Florida, we have Cubans who represent the largest percentage, and then followed by Puerto Ricans. In fact, if you take out the Miami area, uh, Puerto Ricans are the largest Hispanic group uh, in the state of Florida. So I'm going to stop my comments here. I know I've given you a whirlwind of numbers, a lot of information, uh, but we think this is good to set the basic conversation that we're going to be having. So thank you. Thank you. Very well. <laughs> um, as you can see on the screen there, there, please follow our conversation online and feel free to share your thoughts using the hashtags Latinos Advance and Talk Good Jobs. Um, Carmen, if I can turn to you next. So much data about how Latinos contribute to the economy. And I was hoping you could talk a little bit about how our economy treats Latinos and how your work relates to that. Sure. Um, so first and foremost, thank you for having me. Uh, thanks, Maureen and Abigail, for this invitation. I'm really glad to be able to share our work. Again, my name is Carmen Rojas, and I'm the CEO of the Workers Lab. We are a laboratory that supports entrepreneurs and worker organizers to find new ways to build powerful working people in the 21st century economy. Um, so uh, for the general population, the economy isn't working uh, well. right? We know that the vast majority of working people in this country are working more, making less, are making these impossible choices between uh, paying for bills and making sure that their kids have care. And for Latinos, it's actually worse. Um, uh, Latinos uh, overwhelmingly earn less. So Latina women earn 54 about 54% less than their white male counterparts in the workplace. Latino men earn 69 cents on every dollar that their white male counterparts do in the workplace. Um, we also see sort of a proclivity or an interest in trying to align sort of an entrepreneurial conversation. So although they aren't doing well in the traditional labor market, they are doing better, or there's a feeling that they're doing better as entrepreneurs. And what we're actually seeing is that Latinos are actually replacing really bad low-wage jobs in the traditional labor market for a little bit better entrepreneurial opportunities. So 
there isn't the millionaire bodega owner or the millionaire uh, uh, car wash company owner. There's like a, th those stories are few and far between, and we actually see a replacement that Latinos are entering uh, the space of entrepreneurship, frankly, because the traditional labor market isn't meeting our needs. Thank you, Carmen. And Jose, you're involved in government. If you could tell us a little bit about your work and sort of how you see this perspective from the government level about the engagement of Latinos in the workforce. Yeah, thanks, Kimberly. And once again, thanks for having me today. And hello, Oakland, if you're watching. <laughs> <clears throat> um, I think that the stats that Marie described are very similar in Oakland. If you look at the demographics in Oakland, uh, the Latino population is actually the largest minority population now. Um, over the past 30 years, it's had, uh, had significant gains in terms of the Latino population in Oakland, um, largely due to a lot of black population leaving as well. So that's another conversation to have. Um, I think that the other so this, that I want to throw out is that you know, as, as far as small businesses, um, there's 44,000 small businesses in Oakland. Only 8.3 are owned by Latinos. And the average uh, revenues by a white-owned business in Oakland is about 360,000. The average revenues for the Latino-owned business is about 120,000. Wow. So we're not, not only not owning businesses, but we're also, when we own them, to Carmen's points, they're not the large-scale millionaire companies that uh, most of our uh, other ethnic groups are creating. Uh, the other part of it is that um, with 26.9% of the population of Latinos, 69% are asset poor, meaning that they don't have three months of savings uh, at an average uh, living wage. So that means that if there's an emergency, their car breaks down, they get sick, they don't have three months of savings. Mm -hmm. So a large portion of the Latino population is asset poor, which is not good. The other part of it is on education that on, only... Um, 17% of Latinos are graduating college. So 56 make it out of high school, which is still really bad, but only 17 graduate college. So we have to do better, and we can talk, I think we're talking more about the solutions later, but right now it's kind of highlighting a lot of the things that Marie said are true in Oakland as well. Um, and it's also a younger population too. The average uh, median age in, in Oakland is 43, for the Latinos is 25. So we have a young generation, and about 50% about of the OUSD students are Latino. So, so we know that we have, a, a, we have our work to do. Um, and I think we're doing it. We'll talk about it a little bit more. But I think the opportunity right now is really engaging our youth in a better way, both on the education side and also on the jobs, entrepreneurship side. You all have stats that you've heard and, and have in your packets about sort of what the trend lines are, but also there are the exceptions, <laughs> Your mm -hmm. Majesty. <laughs> and <laughs> Maria, I was just wondering. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, Maria, I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how you got to be the queen of trash, as you like to say, <laughs> and what this tells us about how the economy can work and the work that you've been doing to try and replicate your own experience. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's a very good question. Well, uh, thank you for having me. I'm so thrilled and honored to share stage with this group and Abigail and everyone here. Thank you for this opportunity. I'm Maria Rios and I'm the president and CEO for Nation Waste, the first Latina in the waste management industry in the U.S. history in a male-dominated industry. I'm very happy to be here today and I'm nervous, so please I apologize. Um, how I started Nation Waste, uh, I started Nation Waste um, 
well, let me tell you what Nation Waste does. Nation Waste is a uh, waste removal, recycling, and portable toilet services company. We provide services to small business owners, the Fortune 500 companies, and government institutions. Uh, we are headquarters in Houston, Texas, and but we provide services to the entire state of Texas. But clearly, we're not stopping there. My ultimate goal is to go global, which I'm doing that right now with innovation and technology, my next thing, which I will talk about later in just a minute. <laughs> and um, so um, how uh, I started Nation Waste uh, is through education. I came here with my parents when I was 13 um, to, because of a civil war in the country, El Salvador. And so when I graduated from school, I went to, uh, during the, uh, um, going to the University of Houston, uh, develop a business plan. And with that business plan and credit, I created Nation Waste. I started with two trucks, and those two trucks went to three trucks, four trucks, five trucks, and those trucks cost 250000 to $300,000 per truck. So that's a very uh, costly, you know, costly uh, business. So I've been able to uh, grow Nation Waste and, uh, create jobs for more Americans and more Hispanic, Latinas, and Latinos. But the key to this is, is just education, education. Can I follow up on the point that you just made about the quality of jobs? I mean, your data showed mm -hmm. us, and this has been pretty consistent, about uh, Latinos being overrepresented in low-paying jobs throughout the workforce. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us how you work in your business to create a better quality of jobs of jobs for Latinos and Latinas in your community? Well, in the beginning, I think I have uh, made so many changes in the uh, procurement and hiring process. I was very frustrated many times because we were the company training many of uh, our employees and then went and worked for the larger corporations in the waste industry. So then I thought, ding, you know, let's make the change. So I started uh, open doors uh, to my employees and cross-trained my employees in different uh, opportunities, even technology. So we're very excited about that because I think Latinas and Latinos uh, need to prepare themselves in the technology fields. So that's how I've been able to um, accomplish many things and create better jobs for Latinos and Latinas. Uh, and not only for Latinas, I just want Nation Waste not to be just one stop. I want to be a destination. So I want to have solid and sustainable uh, positions for my people and for all. Thank you, Maria. Mm -hmm. And Marie, could you follow up on that with what we know about the labor market trends for Latinos? Okay, thank you. Um, and I really admire what Maria has done as well because uh, of considering not just having our hiring employees, but also considering the quality of the jobs that she's providing uh, to her workers. Um, one of the things to consider is that, I mean, Latinos being such a large population do represent um, the entire occupational spectrum where they ha we have very low skill menial jobs, but also are very high skill professionals that are professional positions held by Latinas, Latinas and Latinos. Um, it should be noted though, because of differences in educational attainment, they are overrepresented in the lower skill jobs. Um, and why that's a concern is, again, going back to basic demographics, you have a very large, a very young, and rapidly growing population uh, that is lagging behind in terms of, uh, in terms of their educational outcomes. Uh, the jobs of the future are looking more and more what we refer to as being skill intensive. And that is, it's going to be extremely hard to stay competitive if people do not have not just a high school degree, but higher, a, a college degree, et cetera. And one of the concerns is that, again, we have this fast-growing population that might be falling behind. Again, making improvements, yes, uh, in an absolute case, um, but essentially maintaining these gaps uh, with the non-Latino population. During the Great Recession, 
most of the major occupations and industries lost jobs except for education and healthcare services. Uh, those types of jobs tend to be tend to require very high levels of education. So even during a time when we had a jobs decline, the industries that were growing were those that required higher higher levels of schooling. And so again, a concern with respect to the quality of jobs and looking forward, uh, especially as the tech sector continues to uh, to increase in presence, uh, that does suggest some warnings uh, for the Latino population and again for the national population if we don't begin addressing uh, changes in socioeconomic outcomes, uh, specifically <coughs> education. Jose, how are you working on this issue in Oakland? I think there's um, a couple ways. So um, on the policy side, you know, I'm actually learning that there's actually sometimes very little that cities can do to address the issue. Um, but I think one of the things that we're doing is, is really, um, one, is really incentivizing how we zone, right? So if we know that a lot of the all of our folks, especially minority populations, start smaller businesses, why do we why do we zone big areas with big footprints where our entrepreneurs can go in there? Why don't we zone areas where you can actually have smaller locations where more micro enterprises or entrepreneurs can actually go and have access to that opportunity instead of having a large footprint that they can't afford? Uh, second of all, you know. Uh, looking at policies that incentivize property owners to keep one of the big issues in, in Oakland, and I think it's the, the case in a lot of cities, is the affordability and the commercial rent increases. So uh, Oakland is it's just it's a really striking reality. It's really expensive. So one of the things is how do we actually incentivize landlords and property owners, one, to have long-term leases, or two, to actually have leases to own because at the end of the day, the way we're going to get to increasing or decreasing the disparities is going to be through asset creation and ownership. So incentivizing landlords to potentially sell uh, their properties to some of these businesses. And finally, on the strategic partnership side of my job is really looking at corporate culture, is looking at businesses like Maria's. Is It's important to do some policy, but it's also important to call out the bad corporate cultures and say, you know, you have to be a good corporate citizen in that community. You can't just be operating without investing in that community uh, through the local suppliers that you use, through the people that you employ, opportunities that you create, philanthropically how you contribute. So there's an opportunity to really uh, coalesce uh, a good and highlight the examples like Maria and say there, there's actually a way to do business that does good for the community as well. So the, uh, on the corporate side of it, I think there's, there's more that we can do there. And I think it takes a coalition, not just in Oakland, but across the cities, to really incentivize good corporate citizens. Uh, there's the B Corp movement. But there's so many other uh, examples, even if you're not a B Corp, that you can actually say, this is the way to run a, a business. You can do it profitably. And you can actually do good social good. Carmen, what is the role of innovation in, in all of this? And, and can you talk about some of the work that you've been doing in improving job quality for Latinos? Sure. Um, so for us, uh, we the way that we approach the question of innovation is frankly like not looking forward like many people, like not looking towards technology, but actually looking back, looking back to an economy that once served many people in this country and allowed people to move into the middle class and trying to figure out what structurally was in place, both on the government side and on the private sector side, that allowed people like my mom, who immigrated when she was a teenager from Nicaragua here, worked cleaning a building, 
um, got a job at that office, became a secretary at that company, and um, uh, actually was able to buy her first home with a no interest loan because she worked at a bank. Like there was an economy in the re in our recent memory that provided for the vast majority of working people, and that economy has disappeared. But we often try to figure out what were what was in place, and I think to Jose's point. We're trying to find and support those models where there's a deep shared fate between working people and business leaders in the economy, where business leaders don't see it as a trade-off to treat their workers. Um, either you pay workers better or you don't do well. We are really excited by the B Corp movement, but we're also excited about things like cooperatives and co-op development and thinking about new ways to structure the movement of wealth in our economy, so more of that wealth goes to the vast majority of working people. To Marie's earlier point about the growth sectors in our economy, during the recession, the fastest area of growth that we saw as well was the restaurant industry. Those are some of the worst jobs uh, in our country, and so, similarly with the service sector. So one of the things that I think we need to uh, really grapple with, and those of us who care about addressing income inequality and uh, transforming our economy so it meets all of our needs, is not that there are good jobs and bad jobs and only focusing on getting our people into those good jobs, but realizing that there are a whole range of jobs. And what we should actually do is make sure that regardless of what job you have, you're able to pay your rent or your mortgage, that you're able to feed your kids, that you're able to make life choices. To Jose's earlier point, like it's not only uh, Latinos, but one in every two US working, working people, working families, half of them have zero dollars in savings. So you imagine what it's like to spend your days and nights working 40, 60, 80 hours and have no safety net. For us, the innovation really lives in trying to reimagine an economy and a set of systems that actually allows working people to meet their fundamental needs and, and more. I mean, if I can follow up with you, there's been a lot of discussion here and more broadly about Latinos starting their own businesses and, and starting their own businesses at higher rates than other groups. But what are some of the challenges <laughs> of operating your own business versus working in the traditional labor market, especially for Latinos? Yeah, and this is probably a, a question that I'm going to tee over to Jose. But for us, and I think we would agree on this, it's a question of capital and access yeah. to capital. The vast majority of Latinos, like the vast majority of people of color in this country have access to highly predatory. People are like, here's $300, start your business. <laughs> and that's just impossible. It's like an impossible capital landscape for Latinos to navigate to start their business. And then in the places that we're talking about where Latinos are highly concentrated, it's just the cost of doing business is, is so much higher. So there's a mismatch where it's really expensive and you don't have enough money. I'm going to <laughs> pass it. No, I agree. I think that the issue of access to capital is one of the bigger issues. And Prior to joining the mayor's office, I was CEO of an organization called ICA Fund Good Jobs, which actually started a, a fund called Fund Good Jobs as a way to uh, make capital accessible to inner city businesses in a way that's not predatory, in a way that advances values rather than just profit and advances good job creation. So, so there's capital out there. Um, I think there should be more 
fun, good jobs out there. Yeah. Uh, there are very few, and I think that the capital sector is very fabricated, and there's so many, there's everything from Kiva to, um, you know, the venture capital world. Um, and I think it's just a, giving access and education um, to the Latino population that there's a place for them in that continuum. Mm. And you can start with a Kiva loan, but you can also have access to venture capital. And I think that's where Carmen and the Workers Lab is going, is figuring out how do you make higher levels of capital, more sophisticated capital available so you can actually grow and scale a business. And there are also programs like the Stanford Latino Entrepreneurs Initiative that Mark Madrid runs that is really looking at, at the issue of how do you scale uh, businesses to the size of Maria's. So there, there's initiatives out there that it's not just governments that are doing it, but I think it, it really is public-private partnerships. How do we work together to uh, reimagine, as uh, Carmen said, the, the economy, but also the capital world? The capital needs to flow and function differently. Mm. Uh, it needs to be more equitable, and I think it, it needs to be more accessible. And I'll come to you in a minute for some concrete examples of what sure, this absolutely. looks like. Mm -hmm. But Marie, I believe you have some data on sort of so, to give us some context for this conversation. Yes. So um, as I mentioned uh, with some of my slides, that I have been working with Alberto Davila uh, on. We've been studying Latino entrepreneurs over the past several years, and uh, we certainly find uh, the issue of access to capital as being one of the challenges that Latino business owners face. Um, so there, there's kind of mixed news there because on the one hand, we've seen this tremendous growth in the self-employed or business owners of Latinos, which is very positive. Uh, the flip side is that they tend to be very small businesses and having challenges like accessing uh, basic capital, uh, financial capital, and also uh, if we have less educated workers, uh, less educated entrepreneurs, then they are not as accessible in terms of human capital. Um, one of the uh, factors that we discuss is the whole issue of a push-pull framework. Uh, where uh, some individuals become self-employed or they start their own businesses because they're having a hard time competing in the overall labor market. Um, those businesses are likely to have different outcomes than those uh, that are started because people see some kind of entrepreneurial incentive and they can see where they can make a difference uh, in that sector. And so we refer to those as pool, that you go into business ownership because it, it, it's a very attractive opportunity. Um, and again, I think it goes back to providing more opportunities to access capital, uh, as well as uh, ensuring that our next generation of business owners uh, have the training, uh, the tools, the education to be able to compete. Okay. Maria, can you tell us a little bit about your story? How did you find the access to capital? How did you overcome some of these op obstacles to starting your own business? That's a very good question. Thank you. Wow. Oh. They, if I feel that if I did it, anybody can do this. I came to the United States not knowing a word of English, and I was made fun many times because of my accent. And you know, I just kept going, uh, continue going with my goals. And I feel I, I added the, the, the ingredient, which is education, uh, creating a growth plan, then a, a, a from a, a business plan to a growth plan, a scaling plan. I was lucky to also be part of the uh, Stanford mm -hmm. Latino Entrepreneur uh, Scaling Program. And I was lucky to be invited uh, also to speak last week. To me, that was just a dream come true. So I've been able to just, you know, put the practice, education, and, and, and focus into the business. Uh, many times when I'm going to job sites, uh, even the superintendents, when I solicit the projects, they laugh at me. Um, they were expecting tacos to be sold. And, uh, you know, I just 
presented to them, I'm Maria Rios, I'm the presidency of Nation Waste. And I noticed your dumpsters are overflowing and <laughs> I feel that um, I can be a solution to your needs. And next thing you know, uh, the outcome was they were my clients from since that time. Uh, same thing happened, uh, you know, with uh, when I went to apply at the bank, the documents were made out to Mario Rios, so they were expecting for Mario Rios to sign the documents at the bank. Because I'm in the waste industry, uh, waste management is a male-dominated industry, the first Latina in, the, in this industry. So, you know, politely with education, I just said, um, you need to correct that, I'm Maria Rios. So we need to put Maria Rios, not Mario Rios, you know. And I've been able to just uh, follow my, my, uh, my education and my goals. And I, uh, I feel that if I have done all of this and been able to succeed and make a very sustainable business, growing my business and taking this business, scaling to the millions, and I'm looking to the billions very soon, I feel that anyone can do it. Do you feel like it was harder for you to access capital to scale up your business than it might have been for other people? Well, again, uh, it's all about education. With the business plan, growth plan, and a scaling plan, you start building your credit. So it seems to me like it comes to me all the time. Um, I do not go to the banks when I need the money. I prepare the foundation before I need it. So when I get these big contracts, like I just recently got a multi-million dollar contract with the city of Houston. We are the official company for all the entire city, for all the parks, the two um, mm. uh, airports. I mean, we're it. I mean, that requires a lot of capital. But because being prepared ahead of time, then it's easy for you to scale. You mentioned preparation, so let's talk a little bit about uh, preparing for the future economy. And Jose, mm. I'd like to start with you, if you don't mind. How do we even identify what the jobs of the future are? And then how do you prepare the Latino <laughs> workforce for those jobs? I was reading a book called The Future of Work. And they, one of the stats in there said that 40% um, of the jobs of the future actually don't even exist yet. So to answer that point, it's hard to prepare for jobs that you don't know don't exist yet. Um, I think what, what you can prepare for is Maria's point, there's education. So in Oakland, we've started uh, the Oakland Promise, which is a cradle-to-career initiative to triple the number of graduates from, um, from, from college in Oakland. Because right now, I, I, I won't go back to the stats that I mentioned earlier, but it's pretty dismal. So we're putting a lot of um, attention into educating our young people in Oakland um, to, to really prepare for the, the jobs that are, um, you know, the STEM careers. And, um, and and those are the kind of the the direction that and technology is one of them. Financial services, uh, real estate, healthcare. You know, how do we prepare our young people to start kind of positioning themselves for those careers? But but let's be honest. No, not everybody is going to be an engineer. Not everybody's going to be an entrepreneur. Um, what I what I really think it really takes is it's really just a culture and narrative change, you know, really raising the expectations of our young people that they can be anything they want to be doing. Uh, because, you know, we often, now we're, I get frustrated sometimes that in the, in the discussions, we say, you have to get, you have to be an engineer to get that tech job. But, you know, how many people are engineers? Very few people too, and not even, even the white people, is like very few engineers. So why are we pushing that everybody to just like boot camps and 
hacking academies, you know, why not just educate in common sense and you know, critical thinking? Uh, how do you enter a job? You know, what are the skills that you need to enter that job? You know, let's not forget about the artist. Artists are great. You know, yeah, sometimes you can make a living off of it, but you know, it's a job. And you know, you want to put, you want to really cater to people's passions. You know, you don't want to push someone to be an engineer when when they really want to be a chef and they want to be a baker. So how do you actually identify the passions of young people early on? So then you can mentor them and steer them, advise them to the career that's going to make them happy. Then it's all the rest of all of us, the adults, who are making this world just harder for them to actually make it easier for them to go on those paths. Everything from figuring out the affordability crisis, the how do we get people to higher education. Um, there's so much that we can do on as, as adults, but let our young people follow their passion. And I think that's something that we, we lost sight of in our culture, I think. Carmen, so often when people talk about the future of work nowadays, it's relating to this gig economy and contract economy and be your own boss. You can be a freelancer and do all of these things because technology allows it to happen. But first of all, Latinos have been engaged in this type of work for a really long time. And I'm wondering about what the gig economy means for the Latino community as it's manifested right now, and what the rest of the economy can learn from the way that Latinos have leveraged this way of working in the past. Um, the, uh, we often talk about Latinos as the original gig workers. Um, they have been through piecemeal work, through agricultural work, paid for the work that they do, not for the hours, and frankly have been working in an economy that hasn't offered them the benefits of retirement, of paid leave, of health care. Um, and so I feel like, if anything, Latinos for the gig economy are the canary in the coal mine. They actually demonstrate what it means to have an economy where workers um, are paid essentially by increment of minute or increment of product and not thought of as drivers of our economy and not thought of, again, in a shared fate with capital and with business of uh, a key source of economic opportunity and economic growth for our country. They are, uh, I think it's around 11% of gig workers are Latinos, but that, like gig workers, just to put it in perspective here, represent 1% of all of the workers in our economy. So it's, I don't focus that much on the Uber driver or the care.com worker. I'm more interested in the 50% of workers that are contingent workers, that are contract workers, janitorial workers, uh, workers that are home care workers, workers that are temporary workers. Those are the workers uh, where we, my hunch is, is if we closed our eyes and imagine a janitor, um, or if we closed our eyes and we imagined a contingent home care worker, chances are that they look like one of us up here and not like their white counterparts in, their, in the economy. And so we see an over-representation of Latinos in these jobs that don't provide the security, that don't provide the training and mobility, um, and frankly, that uh, uh, sort of prove what it means to actually debase the promise of work in this country away from opportunity and towards survival. 
But the shift in the economy is towards this kind of contract-based work and some of the policies that we saw in the recent tax law as well as other policies in the current administration are promoting this type of work. So what does that mean for the Latino community in particular that's already overrepresented in this sector of the economy? It's bad. <laughs> I mean, I don't, I wish I had a, um, it's, it's bad, I feel like, uh, but I'm going to end on a positive note. I feel like for me, the opportunity um, is a couplefold. One, uh, the economy and economic opportunity is the number one issue that Latinos care about. And so when we think of new forms of worker organization in this country, uh, Latinos should be who these organizations and who people who are trying to create or motivate collective action on behalf of working people generally in this country, they should be your target. Latinos should be your target. We're highly represented in some of the worst industries and we care about the economy and quality jobs. I think the second thing is the opportunity to think about um, what it means to create new forms of organizational structure. So, you know, to Jose's earlier point, the B labs, B certification, the benefit uh, corporation movement is really important, right? To create a floor for job quality. And I think that many people are sort of looking for an alternative to this uh, form. For me and for the workers lab, this sort of call to actually uh, take apart the existing safety net for working people is an opportunity to actually call for those things that maybe shouldn't be tied to work, that should just be universal and that you should just expect as a person in this country, like healthcare, like paid leave, like a day off, like you know, um, uh, a pension. I mean, these things that are exist in other places, I feel like for us as an organization, it's a real opportunity to move away from uh, benefits tied to work and instead imagine a country that actually provides for people just for being, right? That provides the most basic safety net. Um, Mary, what types of information can we gain from your research on this about the future of work and how it's going to affect the Latino community? Okay, thank you. So again, one of the common themes has been educational attainment. Um, I do think it's we're essentially, I think, behind behind the ball in terms of promoting educational attainment. I'm glad that we're having these types of conversations. But again, it's ex extremely important to note that a lot of the of the majority of the Hispanic or Latino population growth is now driven by U.S.-born Latinos. And if they're not acquiring education, again, they're going through our school systems, uh, then we are missing the boat in terms of the future direction, not just for Latinos, but also for the nation overall. Um, the concern, again, going back to some of the expected future jobs, we are seeing a divide in terms of the high-skill jobs uh, becoming increasingly skill-intensive. Those are the ones that are going to pay the benefits and have higher salaries uh, versus lower-skill positions. And so there's a concern if we are seeing Latinos continue to be underrepresented. We have these long-term uh, generational gaps uh, that will likely exist because if Latinos today are in these low-paid jobs, uh, they're having children. The children, if they're not going to school or completing school, and sometimes it's because they can't uh, because they need to, to work to support their families, uh, then we're going to see these long-term generational effects uh, that's going to affect the, the nation overall. You got us onto the topic of the importance of, of uh, education, and I'm wondering about technology. We talked about it with the gig economy. How have you seen technology 
how have you implemented technology in your own business and what do you think the role is for technology in promoting quality jobs for Latinos? That's a very good question. And first, and like I said, uh, it's all about education. Uh, one of my best friends, uh, Mark Madrid says, and I preach that, education cannot be taken away. No one can take education from you. And um, how uh, implementing technology, I think it's so important for Latinos and Latinas you know, to engage into programs of technology innovation, especially the ones not looking into going to universities. So we have to have some kind of training for them because innovation in technology is the future right now. Like in my case, it started when the waste management industry from the dumpsters to the portable toilets to the recycling and everything is being uh, find a need and fill it. So I work uh, with oil and gas industries and customers uh, in the construction industry and I've seen how safety is so important for all of us, especially with my company as well. So that was another niche in technology innovation. So what I have done um, to uh, innovate and to be part of, uh, I created an application uh, with uh, this uh, uh, innovation in technology and I partner with IBM to power this. So workers can wear this uh, helmet or sensors can be provided into their vest or anything to detect um, accidents and prevent accidents. The supervisors will be notified if they have an accident or if they, or they have fatigue or any things of the things. I have 20 shields that I cannot mention that I invented and I put it together using technology <laughs> and innovation. <laughs> if I can hold this up, um, I don't know if people can see this online, but inside of this helmet there's a bright orange sensor with obviously something secret in it yes. <laughs> that uh, seems to um, fit right within the harness inside the helmet. You can go ahead and keep so talking. Nation, uh, waste, uh, so I implemented a division, it's called Nation Safety Net, powered by IBM. And again, I'll be the first Latina in the uh, safety industry, uh, innovation and technology. So um, safety will be, it will be, is revolutionized with this because it's not only going to prevent accidents, but will also increment productivity uh, for the workers, uh, not only in the United States, but in the world. I'm happy to report that, um, I mean, this is just uh, an amazing opportunity for me and not only for myself, but creating jobs, sustainable jobs, uh, putting into my employees that cross-training part. You know, now they're in technology. So that's how innovation and technology can be put together. But again, it's all about education and having this. Like I said, uh, many people don't go to college, don't have the opportunity. So we need to somehow come up with some more training for these uh, Latinos and Latinas in general. Thank you for that. And Jose, if I can just, um and with you before we get to our lightning round. Um, there's been quite a bit of discussion on this topic in particular about technology and how it can advance someone in the labor force apart from a college degree. So often we hear about uh, go to college and learn about the STEM fields and that will advance your career. Do you see two different pathways there? Yeah, I think when I think about technology, I love, um, the new commercial that's out by Common, where he talks about technology as a tool, not the goal. And you know, the, the, the technology for a painter is their brush. Um, and technology for, you know, Maria, it's 
it's, it's a secret inside your head, <laughs> your helmet. So uh, I, I think it is two different paths. I think there's a path of traditional STEM education, engineering, it can get you into the technology field. And then to think about technology, and again, it's opening up people's minds like, you know, what can you think about? What are the new ways of doing things? Innovation is not always technology, mm. by the way. So technology is not the answer to everything. Sometimes it actually makes it worse. So uh, when I think about innovation, I just think about you know, creativity and new ways of approaching a problem, uh, new questions of asking, answering a problem. So, so that, that's what I think about. So the, for me, the path about to tech is not always STEM. Uh, it's, always, it's, it's more about, again, the critical thinking, like how are you approaching problems differently, mm. and then how you enter the field and then add value in that field by thinking about a problem differently. So you don't have to always have the tech mindset and be a hacker uh, to go into the tech field. So before we get to the last question, I uh, just wanted to let everyone know in a couple of minutes we're going to go into the question and answer round. And so people should feel free to, uh, there'll be microphones that will be passed around so that you can ask questions on the mic. And if you're following us online, please, please, please feel free to submit questions via social media. Our hashtags are Latinos Advance. And what's the other hashtag? Talk good jobs. Talk good jobs. Thank you. And so submit your questions online, and we'll try to get those to our panelists as well. And so now the last question, this is for everyone, and I'll just start with you, Maria, and then we can go around, is why does this topic of the Latino workforce, advancing the Latino workforce, why does it matter for everyone else in America? Well, I think it's a very good topic. Uh, we are the new majority. So that's, to me, very, very important. And of course, uh, uh, Latinos and Latinas, we have a lot of talent. So it's, it's important for overall economy. Carmen? Like I said, the economy is the number one issue for Latinos, both US-born and immigrants. People aren't immigrating here because of our beaches and buildings. People are immigrating here because of economic opportunities. And so I think that. Uh, the more we can actually respond to uh, and actually have more conversations like this that offer us that are very real, tangible solutions to the economic needs of Latinos, the more our economy will be able to meet the needs of all working people. I agree. I, th I think it's, it's an, ec an economic imperative. Um, if, if your population looks like us, um, you know, why not address it? Why not address this population? Why not try to figure out what their needs are and how do you solve their problems? So if you know the stats that Marie cited that by 2060, one in every three people in the US is gonna be Latino and look like us, um, you know, there's I wouldn't see it as a problem, I would see it as an opportunity mm. and as a critical thing that we need to address. Marie. Okay, yeah, so I guess I'm ending our panel discussion with essentially why I started or how I started, and that is why should we care? And I think that's an excellent question to end on. Um, again, because of basic demographics, the Latino population growth, um, right now the driver of that population growth is the second generation. It, these are US-born children. It's not immigration. Uh, that shifted over a couple of years ago. So if we are seeing that our US-born, our, our children, 
are not moving forward socioeconomically, it doesn't just affect the Latino community, it affects the nation overall. And it's extremely important if the US wants to remain competitive, uh, not just uh, within the region, but internationally, that we need to make sure that we do not drop the ball or continue to drop the ball with respect to seeing the socioeconomic advancement of the Latino population. Thank you all, and let's move to some questions. Anyone in the room? Oh, you were very excited. <laughs> 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 uh, give us your name, and just while you're here, not targeted at you, but just for everyone asking questions, if you can please keep the questions quite short so we can get to as many of them as possible. If you start going longer than 30 seconds, I may give you the side eye. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Brigadier General Andrew Salas. I'm the uh, Special Assistant to the Chief of the National Guard Bureau for Diversity and Inclusion. Uh, training and education seems to be a gateway towards opportunities. All of you have mentioned that in one form or another. One of the uh, pathways to get that education and training service in the United States military Regrettably, the military is underrepresented in the Latino population. Do you have any advice for the United States military, for me, to help better attract the talent that is resident in our Latino young men and women? Thank you for your question. Who'd like to take that one? Um, I would say, you know, I, when I was younger, I wanted to go to the Air Force. And my dad said, no way in hell. You're not going to that. So I think it's a cultural thing. You know, I think I think people, to Carmen's point, people are leaving their countries not for it's an economic opportunity, but also it's you got to embrace their values. Like why why are people in this country? And and I think it comes down to parents still hold a big say in the Latino community. Uh, so if you want to win the heart of your potential recruit, I would say start by winning the heart of your the parents too. Uh, and, and really embrace their culture and what their values are and make sure those values are embodied in, in the military as well. Can you give some concrete examples of what that would look like? Um, well, I think, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric right now, especially, I mean, it's going to be harder for you to recruit this population right now in the military because there's a lot of rhetoric that speaks about how Latinos are ruining this country. So why would they want to join the military? Um, so, uh, you know, if, if you really want to target that population, again, you know, view them as an asset of the, to this country. And not just an asset to the military, but an asset to the economy. And again, it, it goes to their whole family tree, not just that individual. That individual might be so excited because he gets to, I don't know, what do you do? But um, they, people get excited, but I think, um, it, you know, especially with your position of diversity and inclusion, you have to be inclusive of the whole culture. Okay, any other questions? Oh, uh, ma'am. Thanks, I'm uh, Peggy Archowski. I'm with the Hispanic Outlook on Higher Education. I'm the congressional reporter. Hate to bring up the elephant in the room, but <laughs> in these days particularly, um, what percentage of that 57 million population are not uh, citizens? I know about nine million of the illegal immigration policy illegal immigrant population are Latinos. But I know there's a, a large number of Latinos on temporary visas, legal temporary visas, including ATP, the TPSs. And then <clears throat> there is a large population also uh, on permanent. Temporary so do you know that? And how does that affect um, the, even their, their futures, their, their access to some of the government training programs and all that? Marie, do you have any of that information? Yeah. I don't have the specific numbers off the top of my head out of the 57 million. Um, 
I want to say it's about half and half, a foreign-born versus U.S.-born. It might be a little bit more U.S.-born. Um, but again, if we start looking at the younger, uh, younger, group, younger age groups, we're actually seeing, again, the, a lot of the population growth is now being driven by U.S.-born Latinos. Uh, so that means that over time, uh, I think a lot of the discourse about what's happening with the Latino population is going to shift more to education and training, not less, uh, and away from immigration, because again, what we're seeing driving the Latino population growth is, is the next generation, the, again, U.S.-born. But to address her question directly about the proportion of undocumented residents who are part of the Latino workforce, if the number is 56 or 50... The 57.4, that was the total population. So that's that wasn't the total just the population. The number I often hear is 11 million undocumented I've, residents. Yes, so I have heard that, yes. That's that's the number I typically hear. You'd want to double check that, but... But that's total. But, but that's the total that, yeah. But that's the total, and so, but at, at, at absolute no, general. most... In general, it's 11 It's not just 11 million. Yes. Yes. There are right. undocumented Asian yeah, people, so undocumented African people, right. European people. The point being that at... Even at its highest number, you're still talking about a relatively small portion of the Latino workforce yeah. was, mm -hmm. was what I was trying to yeah. get at. Yes. Um, I think you had a question, sir? Hi, uh, Eric Palladini. I represent the Latino GLBT History Project here in DC, but I've got a, a, another question. We often talk about job growth, job creation on the one hand. It, there's also an effort to, uh, to, to keep um, uh, wages down. Uh, anti-minimum wage laws and all that. Uh, so what is the nexus between job growth on the one hand and wage policy on the other? And how can we create jobs that are also uh, also uh, provide for wage growth? Carmen, do you have that one? Or is that another Marie question? Uh, I mean, if I understand, they think that is a you question. Right. <laughs> yeah. And, and like my instinct is to say, like the fight for 15 is a great example, right? Like raising minimum wage city by city, state mm -hmm. by state, increasing the federal minimum wage is a huge effort um, in this political climate. Raising the, the, minimum, the minimum wage federally is a long shot, um, to say it generously. Um, but if I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I, mean, I think that's a, an extremely important question. And I think actually it gets more to the conversation we just had in terms of trying to change the dialogue and changing the culture uh, yeah. within, our, within our society. Um, minimum wages themselves might have their own issues. Like, as you said, there's essentially, there has been a move about an anti-minimum wage. Um, I think we should be focusing more on trying to find ways to create jobs and to stimulate the demand for labor. Uh, that would also, we would hope, would benefit, would end up resulting in higher wages. What we've been seeing, though, is even though we've had jobs growth, the wages have not kept up, right. and that is a big, a very big concern. Because yes, we might have new jobs being created, but if the wages are not growing with it. It's, mm -hmm. it's really keeping people, it's keeping a large segment of the population relatively impoverished, yeah. even of those who are working full time. And again, this has long-term uh, internet intergenerational benefit or benefits and costs mm -hmm. if we don't address it, because. Uh, their, their children are going to be going to school and might also have uh, challenges and barriers that will prevent them from attaining additional levels of education. And I think Maureen so, has some additional follow-up information. If you could okay. re-identify yourself as yeah. well. Yeah. So hi, I'm Maureen Conway, the Economic Opportunities Program. And this is something that we think about quite a bit because we think that there's 
a false trade-off between sort of job creation and job pay, and there's this idea that somehow we, we either have to choose creating more jobs but bad jobs or raising pay for a few people. But I think if we think about what are the systems and feedback loops, we can see that we just can't really sustain the kind of economy we want on this sort of broad base of low-wage work. People have, keep coming back to sort of education as an important thing, right? Well, how do we pay the education system? Yep. With the taxes that people pay mm -hmm. from their wages that they earn at work, right? So I don't think we can keep, you know, sort of trading these ideas off as one thing. And another thing I just want to say is we're, we have an initiative within the Economic Opportunities Program that's called the Good Companies, Good Jobs Initiative. And we're really showing in a variety of industries and, and, and in a variety of ways, the different ways that people can run highly successful, really good uh, businesses while also paying really good wages and something that people can live on and support themselves. So, so I think I think that this is a this is a, a conversation that it would be help you know, and and a number of people have already spoken to this, but I think it's important to just put a pin on. We we should stop sort of trading this off. We want people to work, and if we want people to work, they deserve to be paid. And I saw some questions over here. There's how about you? Hi, I'm Vanessa Pistrito of Lattice Ventures. I launched my venture capital firm in two years ago. Um, originally Campos from El Paso, Texas. So just wanted to establish okay. that. Uh, we believe in the future of work at my fund, and I want to understand a better way to bridge the gap with this community because I'm in the tech bubble, and I'm trying to find ways to include and give access to the tech bubble that I get to live in in New York. So you mentioned operating roles in startups and uh, access to capital. But how else can people like me and my network create and reach out and create better opportunities? Any of you can let me know or anyone in the audience. Okay. I'd be greatly appreciative to share with all of my friends on my different networks in New York and San Francisco. Maria, do you want to start on that one in terms of what would help you? And, and if think back when you were starting up, what might have been something that would have really helped you move forward and, and connect with venture capital? You have your own. Yes. Um, wow, that's a very good question. Uh, in the very beginning, again, uh, I started associating uh, with very, very smart people, people that knew more than me, uh, mentors, many mentors, my professors. And I started connecting the dots and scaling my business right away. So I would recommend for you to even reach out to um, the Chamber of Commerce in the area and your, your uh, Everybody that knows more than you in the industry that you're in, many times uh, was afraid to ask questions. Uh, and just don't be afraid, because uh, they love to answer those questions. Just be respectful of their time. Carmen? I think that there are a number of venture capital firms that do targeting entrepreneurs of mm -hmm. color really well, K4 Capital being the one that's front of mind for me. Um, and I think that it's just, uh, frankly, for them and from, uh, for other people who are targeting uh, black and Latino entrepreneurs in particular, it's uh, just a commitment. It's not a mystery, right? They're not trying to uh, solve a, a need that is far out of the realm of what's possible. They're, frankly, meeting the needs of entrepreneurs where they're at. So they realize that most black and Latino entrepreneurs don't have parents that are going to front-end capital for their business, that's going to be, it's, there's no friends and family money for most black and Latino entrepreneurs. So they step in and provide that flexible first in capital for, black, for their entrepreneurs that they support. I think um, that is an example of how they are 
understanding or situating Latinos within the economy and within sort of intergenerational transfer of wealth and within the movement of money in our economy and actually meeting their needs where they're at? I think the other thing that I would say, I think Cape or Capital is, is a good example of, of a network and they're based in Oakland. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so you're, I mean, you're in San Francisco, so you know that network. But you say you had an office in San Francisco? No, Okay. But just quickly for people who might not know what that business is. So Capital Capital is uh, it's actually, it's, they have three functions. Capital Capital invests in minority-led entrepreneurs uh, in the tech industries exclusively. Um, but I think there's, there's others. I mean, you go to every university now. They have every business school, Haas, Stanford. They all have networks for uh, people of color. I think that the question to you is, you know, how do you demystify the venture capital world to these entrepreneurs. Because I think one of, one of my uh, biggest critiques of venture capital is that uh, you're always looking for the biggest return. Mm -hmm. And I think for me, that needs to change. Uh, if, if you really want to invest in different kind of entrepreneurs, you don't always have to look for the biggest return. You know, how do you look for, you know, uh, there's a whole movement of impact investing, which I also think is kind of off the charts in terms of their way off as well. Uh, in terms of their delivery, there's a lot of talk but I think it, I care about this a lot, and that's what I did for 15 years before I came to this office, is making sure that venture capital also understands the constituency that you're trying to serve. Not everybody's gonna be the Mark Zuckerberg mm -hmm. and have the capital that they have and without you know, being asked their credit score. Mm -hmm. And you look at every person of color and they're, as a business owner, and the first thing they ask is their credit score. You know, why is that? Again, it's a culture shift that needs to happen, and I think you could be a real example and a model and how venture capital can behave differently. Uh, there was a gentleman over here who had a question, if I'm not, oh, back there, go for it. Hi, my name is Carlos Marguera. I'm the founder of Pay Your Interns. And <laughs> nice <Yes>. name. <laughs> <laughs> I have a question, because I know, Jose, you brought this up. We always talk about education as like the only vehicle to you know, get out of poverty. Um, and it definitely does help, especially being someone that's low income. But I sometimes for, feel like we don't talk about um, workforce skills and access to internships, given how most, most of them are unpaid. So one thing I noticed is like, I, you know, I went to American. Some of my friends also came their first generation. They had scholarships, but they couldn't afford to intern for free. So they graduated, yay, right, first generation, but they didn't have experience in what they studied for. And they don't have the same networks as their wet counterparts. So do you think we're gonna start talking about like two for one? So like, yes, education matters, but also having access to internships, so. Yeah. I love that name. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I wanna to talk to you afterwards. <laughs> that, that actually speaks to one of my value system is, you know, we often, especially, and I'll be one of the honest and candid, at the mayor's office, all the interns that we have are non-people of color because they can afford to not get paid. And so how do we actually go to your value system and make sure that everybody, again, as a corporate culture, they value the work yeah. and they pay for it. Um, and I think in terms of the education too, you know, we have to start defining education differently. It's not just a four-year career. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody starts pushing everybody towards a four-year degree in a college, but what about a community college system yeah. and the AAs and trade, the building trades, and just some skill certificate that you can actually get a good job in the manufacturing business and you know not only interns but apprenticeships as well like, how do you look at those as well so um, and, and it can be I don't know what you meant about, about the two for one but I, but I think uh, 
I think we have to value every intern the same. Yeah. I also think that there's like a there's a way in which we have situated education uh, free from the imp like the cost of education. Like the vast majority of young people who are graduating from college now are poorer and will be poorer than their parents ever will be. And I, and so thinking about education in this way, where uh, it's not only the four-year university, but it's also sort of the ability to intern. And it's I think it's our job, right? So like we don't have unpaid interns or unpaid fellows at the workers lab because I don't ever want anybody to one like I value diversity in myself but I don't want anybody ever to feel like they have to make a trade-off in order to um, be of service to working people through our organization and I think it's our job as leaders um, to actually set forth and to sort of take your mission and embody it through our work. Thank you for your question. We have a comment from Abigail and then also a question from online. Okay, so mine's actually a question. Can as a you restate who you are? For yes, everybody. Abigail Golden Vasquez, Executive Director of the Latinos in Society program. So I'm glad you brought this issue up about education and how expensive education is, and more Latinos are going to college, but um, there's a real problem about graduating, and one of the key challenges is the ability actually to pay for college. So they'll enter and then not be able to complete their studies due to the cost. So uh, a question for the panel is how, do, how might we address this um, through policy, and then a specific question for uh, Maria, which is, um, I've heard you say before that part of the reason that your business is so successful has to do with um, providing benefits and providing good jobs, the kind of good jobs that we've been talking about. So could you talk a little bit about how um, providing good jobs actually is a good business decision, how that's helped you to be successful? So on the paying for education bit first, uh, do you have any data on that, Marie? I, I don't have uh, hard data, but I will say that one, in terms of a policy solution, I think having making college more affordable, uh, having more scholarship, um, work-study opportunities would be extremely valuable. Um, when I went to school, I had a, a scholarship as an undergraduate. I worked, I was a graduate assistant with both my master's degree, and I had a fellowship for my PhD. So when I graduated from with my PhD, I, I essentially had no debt. Um, I'm also really proud, my, my younger brother also has his PhD, and what happened is, he's five years younger than me, he saw me get my PhD, he thought that was neat, and so he applied and he also got full ride funding. And so my dad likes to say that two of his kids have PhDs, but my parents paid nothing, um, because I mean we wouldn't have been able to afford without having these uh, other opportunities. So my, in terms of policy solution, I'm extremely passionate about making more scholarships available, making, making schools much more affordable. And Maria, the role that providing benefits and the benefits that you give to your workers, how does that shape the how you're contributing to the workforce? Well, uh, with me and the company, what we have done is first and foremost, we cross-train, like I said, the employees, not necessarily on the positions that they're in, but they come from bottom up, so they get better benefits and better pay. What do you mean by cross-train for people who might not be familiar with that terminology in the workplace? For example, I have uh, employees that start just from uh, being helpers and then drivers or perhaps uh, employees that are in the office and they not, don't know anything about technology and about uh, accounting. So we train these uh, uh, individuals that recently graduated from college sometimes. So they end up, uh, you know, to be the managers of that department in the end because we cross-train them. And benefits, uh, with their benefits, uh, same thing. Uh, I try to 
do negotiations and getting great benefits such insurance and uh, 401k, anything that can be possible so I can retain and maintain uh, this quality uh, jobs for these employees. And how has that helped make your business or not more competitive in the workspace? And that has definitely helped me big time to be competitive and to sustain um, and my, maintain my employees uh, not going elsewhere because there's nothing else to go out there that is not, I don't have. Although we're a small company compared to the giants out there, but we still are uh, competing and sometimes even better because of our culture. It's a family culture that we incorporate, so everybody looks into that culture. And uh, uh, I feel that I, I'm doing a fabulous job doing that. Mm. Okay, <laughs> then. <laughs> Thank you. And we have a couple of questions from online. Thank you, social media. How can we elevate Latino workers' voices, and how can Latino workers get a seat at the table in improving economic opportunities? Volunteers? I'll just say um, one of the things to start with would be ha having more panel discussions like this. Um, part of the purpose of this panel discussion is also to raise awareness and to uh, help people, especially going through social media, uh, to be able to share some of their questions uh, so that they do get uh, to have their voices on the table. I think also trying to reach out and have more advisory roles uh, that Latinos can play or, you know, a lot of agencies um, and organizations have advisory committees and boards and I think it would behoove them to also reach out to the Latino community to get those voices heard. Any other questions from online? All right, more questions from the room? Yes, sir. <clears throat> Just wait a moment for the microphone, please. Uh, Isaias Garcia from the Financial Clinic in New York City. Um, uh, just to give you a little bit of context, uh, working with uh, Unidas US to uh, make an impact on 40,000 Latinos to become more financially secured. Uh, so my question is, how do we empower Latinos to uh, trust banks and organizations to fulfill their American dream uh, now that there is more lack of trust, more than ever? <laughs> you guys are like throwing easy. Uh -huh. <laughs> Carmen, you laughed. You get it. <laughs> Um, I mean, I, yeah, it's, it's a, no, it's a great question. I, I think, um, you know, I, my dad was an entrepreneur as well. He came from Mexico and he started a farm in Watsonville, in the strawberry farm, and grew it to a pretty successful business that he has now. Um, so I saw, uh, it was not until maybe 20, 30 years into his career that he actually took a loan. Um, and it's because of the distrust and it comes back to the distrust in the banking business in Mexico, how, how bad it was. Um, and I think, uh, I think you hit on a point that I think it's a, it's a big um, challenge in the Latino community is the trust of institutions, not just banks, but institutions in general. Um, and so I, I think it, you know, what you're taking on is a, it's a great challenge of, of just really broad education. Uh, even to the previous prior question about uh, how do you get people at the table, it's, you know, you know, how do you expose them to that having a, a bank is not a bad thing, but actually be very beneficial. And um, but it's, it's also you almost have to flip the script uh, on that. And it's, it, I think it takes a lot of education in that community. Uh, I also think bridging. So yeah. Like the bridging of like what pe people are uh, like having financial transactions every day. Like whether or not they use a bank is probably secondary. Mm -hmm. And so like bridging how people have financial transactions every day 
to the formal institutions and instead of expecting them to use financial institutions in one type of way, actually making multiple ways that financial institutions can meet the needs not only of Latinos, but of multiple communities, right? But I think there's an interesting point to, to his question, um, not just sort of the trust of financial institutions overall, but particularly in the United States, following the recession, we saw so much information about how Latino communities especially were really targeted by the banks for these subprime loans and communities of color more broadly. And so there's recent history in the United States uh, eroding that trust. Mm -hmm. So what now? Other banks. I mean, there are, there, it's like, like, there are like three banks. You need to get a panel of banks. No, but it's also <laughs> like. Asking that question, how they're addressing it. But it's also like, we, we often, to unfortunately, like call out names, assume that an amalgamated bank or that a community bank uh, or that a nonprofit bank is the same as Wells Fargo. And they're not. Like, they are different. They are community-serving financial institutions that weren't predatory, that actually were meeting the, the needs of people of color who were banking with them. And so I think part of our work, and makes, frankly, part of your job, is to try to sort of um, uh, situate, right? Like, that there are certain banks that did our communities really wrong. Um, and we shouldn't be banking. Nobody should be banking with them, frankly. And then there are a whole bunch of banks that are doing their best to make sure that our communities have access to the capital they need to live to live the lives that they want to live. We oh, go ahead. I was just saying, and actually, just a quick introduction. Barbara Robles is here from the Federal Reserve, uh, the Board of Governors <laughs> Federal Reserve System. Call uh, out. Yeah, calling around. <laughs> no, and the reason why I mentioned not because of the Fed, but actually because a lot of her research has been on the unbanked community and what banks can do and communities can do to bring in that population into the banks. So, so I just wanted to make that quick introduction. So you might want to talk to her afterwards. So, so I'm not calling out. Um, we are running out of time. So you, you, and then if anybody else has another question, you should think of it fast, quickly. Hi, Randy Rivera, actually from Chicago, with a few organizations or connections through. I'm a, sit on the board of Accion Chicago, which is a micro lender. So that question is a really good question. I think it, technology can play a big role in that. But I'm actually interested in the panel's perspective or experience on a more tactical basis in terms of retooling. How have you seen any models where community colleges or and or um, local innovation hubs have been really good places where Latinos can go to identify either retrain, train up, or find their passions. I'm just curious if the panel represents an interesting cross-section of the country, um, if there's any examples that we should hold to light. Because I think in Chicago, there's a big opportunity, a big opportunity we find in terms of creating those over, that overlap. Um, but I'm curious if there's any other good examples across the country. I'll say, uh, um, and actually it's something that Jose mentioned earlier, and that is uh, a lot of universities now are trying to reach out and uh, create more opportunity, like uh, entrepreneurship hubs or business incubators. Um, this is somewhat of a new model. I'm not sure offhand like if they're with the longer st uh, standing models like that would be. Uh, for example, in my own institution, the University of Texas Rio Grande Valley, um, our population um, serves the, the lower Rio Grande Valley, which is about 90% Latino. Um, our business school just opened up an incubator hub, and, and the idea is that more businesses, you know, small businesses can go there and, and get support from the university and even have some office space. Um, I know that the State University of New York, uh, some other campuses, um, also have such models, and I'm not sure, again, offhand. Yeah. One of the initiatives that we launched in uh, Oakland was the Oakland Emerging 100, which is an entrepreneurship initiative um, between Youth Impact Hub Oakland, uh, United Roots, and the mayor's office 
to promote youth entrepreneurship between the ages of 18 and 29. Most of them are black and Latino owned. I look really looking at young entrepreneurs that um, are not going the tech route or not going to university or doing both, but they really see entrepreneurship as their passion. There's another organization in Oakland called Dev Labs, D-E-V Labs, uh, that strictly supports Latino businesses, entrepreneurs, and they do work not only in Oakland, but they do they take entrepreneurs from Chile, Colombia, Argentina, and even Jamaica, and bring them and expose them to U.S. markets. So, so they do kind of an exchange program as well. Uh, so they're, they're a, a, I think the one exclusive Latino entrepreneurship hub that that I know of. I think there might be others that I don't know, but but Dev Labs is one that that's out there, and it's in Oakland as well. Go ahead. Um, I also want to mention I like I said education, education. <coughs> Anywhere I can get training, I love to attend. I was part of the program from Goldman Sachs, 10,000 Small Businesses, and it's how to grow your business and think out of the box. And it's a training for small business owners to take the business to another level. And after I finished that program, I grew my business 700%. And they take the, uh, the uh, business owners from $250,000 and up. So if you want to look it up, it's... Uh, 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 Goldman Sachs 10,000 Small Businesses Program, and is on every uh, state, uh, New York, uh, Chicago, uh, even here. Uh, in fact, I was here last week and had a wonderful conversation with Warren Buffett. Uh, he was part of that uh, summit, and I was um, celebrating 6,800 Latinos and business owners across the United States. Uh, this is a great program, and uh, they clinics for banking clinics, uh, negotiation clinics, to you name it to grow the businesses across the United States. That's a nice positive note on which to end. So I want to thank our very esteemed panelists. This has been an amazing and enlightening discussion. And I hope everyone here and watching online will continue this conversation on social media. Our hashtags are Latinos Advance, Talk Good Jobs, and then the Twitter accounts at Aspen Latinos and at Aspen Workforce. And thank you all so much. Have a great day.